Mark chapter 1. Mark 1, continuing with the Missio Christi series. The title of this message is Call, and you'll see why in a moment as we read the text. Mark chapter 1, picking it up in verse 16. It says, And as Jesus was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James and the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that this morning you would have your way with us. We ask that you would step into our worlds as you did for Peter and Andrew and James and John, that you'd step into our worlds and issue a call that can't be missed, that you would beckon us to follow you, to be with you, to stay near you, to imitate you to a greater degree than ever before, Lord, we ask that your burdens would become our burdens. We ask humbly with fear and trembling that you would begin to break our hearts with that which breaks your hearts. That Jesus, we would see you more clearly, that we might see people more clearly. And that you would lead us into mission. Lord, we're sorry and I'm sorry for our own complacency. And we ask just for a deeper burden that's in consonance with your heart, Lord. So we, we, we give you permission to mess with us. Holy Spirit, come and mess with us. We give you permission to make us a little less comfortable, to confront us with some things. Ask, Lord, that you would please use me, that you wouldn't let me mess up what you want to say, but I would be a faithful herald of your word by the grace of your spirit. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we learned the last couple weeks, the first thing that Jesus did in the period of his public ministry was to pronounce that the kingdom had come. He said, just a couple verses before our text this morning, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent therefore and believe the gospel. The first thing he does is announces the inbreaking of the kingdom. The second thing he does is issue an invitation into the work of the kingdom. He says the kingdom is here and then he says now be involved in its going forth. Now, if we look at the gospel accounts carefully, we can discern a few phases of discipleship, at least two and and maybe five with some authors. But we concern ourselves with two this morning. The first phase of discipleship, if you will, is just knowing Jesus, getting to know him. Here we see these men being called to work with Jesus. But prior to that, they had met Jesus. In John chapter 1, and they had spent some time with him. They had been to the wedding at Cana with him. They had been to Passover in Jerusalem with him. They had gone to see John the Baptist's ministry with him. 
So they were already kind of in the first phase of discipleship. The first phase is salvation, believing, being with. Now they're entering into the second phase of discipleship, which is not merely salvation, but it's participation. It's not merely believing, but it's being on mission. It's not just being with, but it's going with. So they're entering into the second phase. And we often refer to this as people's call or calling. This is common phraseology for us. God's got a calling on his or her life or they've got this specific call. But the truth is we are all called. If you are a Christian, you are called. And I want us to ask ourselves this morning, I want to ask you right now, what is your call? If you're a Christian, you have a call to mission. What is your call? We can talk about it in broad terms, in a macro sense, that we're all called to be, you know, ministers of reconciliation. We're all called to be ambassadors of Christ, proclaimers of the gospel, demonstrators of the life of Christ, that we're all called to be stewards of his grace. Broad terms, yes. But what about in particular terms? What about contextually? What about in the very minutiae of your life, in what you do, and who you are, in your relationships, and how you spend your time? What is your call? Can you identify your call? Are you able to say in my context who Christ has made me to be, how I spend my time, this is what he has me doing. This is what I'm doing with him. This is the call upon my life. Do you even know? Because as I said previously, every Christian is called. Therefore, every Christian is either fulfilling that call or failing in that call. Peter, who had been called by Christ here in our text, understood what that meant, said to every Christian in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, he said, you are a chosen race. Speaking to us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter tells us as one whom himself had discovered, experienced the call of Christ, that we are chosen. We are called in order that we might proclaim and make known the excellencies of God who rescued us from darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son and his marvelous light. So part of our self-identity as Christians, as the church, is chosen. Remember our definition of the church that we started with earlier in this series, that the church is the people of God, called to God, sent by God for the glory of God to meet the needs of the world with God. And that's our identity, our self-understanding, biblically speaking. What's neat when we look at the Bible is that we see that God always chooses his partners. We're called to be fellow workers with Christ, it says in Corinthians. God chooses, handpicks those who are his partners. He chose Noah. He chose Abraham. He chose Moses. He chose David. 
He chose the nation of Israel and he's chosen you. What is interesting about those whom God chooses is that if you look at scripture and in the mirror, you realize that they are less than perfect. Can I get an amen? amen. Ventura, can I get an amen? You realize that they are less than perfect. If we look at scripture carefully, we see that Noah seemed to have a drinking problem that led to some really weird stuff in his life. If we look at scripture carefully, we see that Abraham, the father of faith, struggled tremendously with doubt, disbelief that the Lord would really deliver on his word. If we look carefully, we'll discover that Moses had a multitude of deficiencies. Couldn't speak well, overreacted, disobeyed. So much like me. David, David was an adulterer and a murderer. The prophets were no better. If we're to look to Elijah, it seems that Elijah was suicidal. We look to the prophet Jeremiah and we see that Jeremiah was depressed. We look at Isaiah. Isaiah preached naked. <laughs> it's in there. Read your Bible. Jonah ran from the call of God. Ran from it. We look to the nation of Israel. And we see over and over in Scripture that God refers to them as a stiff-necked and obstinate people. Therefore, when we too are called chosen... It ought to yield in us a great humility because of the type of people we see that God chooses. The New Testament says explicitly what the Old Testament illustrates wonderfully. It says in Corinthians, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and to despise. God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to yield in us a deep humility as God's people. As those who have been chosen by him to be his own, to go forth with him in mission. There needs to be a deep humility before, because he uses the foolish things of the world. And what, what is choosing of people like you and me and Peter and Andrew and James and John shows us is once again something about the kingdom, that it's an upside down kingdom. The kingdom doesn't conform to conventional standards of importance, power, and influence. It approaches it differently. Jesus announces the coming of the kingdom. The king is here. The kingdom is inbreaking. It's going to undo evil. But he doesn't choose the politically powerful. He doesn't recruit the influential. He doesn't go to the elite of Jerusalem. He goes to the normal of Galilee. And when we look at their normalness in the Gospels and in the epistles, we realize that they weren't the greatest men on earth. 
John MacArthur, who has a way with words, says this about them. They were often self-centered and inhospitable. When the multitude who had walked a long way around the Sea of Galilee to be with Jesus became hungry, the disciples thought of sending them away on their own to find food. Right? The disciples said, Jesus, get these hungry people out of here. When some little children were brought to Jesus for blessing, the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Peter thought he'd be extremely generous to forgive someone up to seven times. Even on the night of Jesus' betrayal, as their Lord agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John could not even stay awake with him. No, the disciples were selfish, proud, weak, and cowardly. They showed little potential, even for dependability, much less for greatness. Yet Jesus chose them for his disciples, even to be his inner circle of 12. They were raw material that he would make into useful instruments. They were raw material. We're raw material. Jesus said to him this day, follow me and I will make you to become. There would be a process that Christ would initiate in their lives. He would make them to become fishers of men. And the training of the 12 would become a large part of the gospels and it becomes a large part of our lives. And we realize that the 12 would often fail him. They would frequently disappoint him. But they were indispensable to him for they were the chosen of God. And he would use them for the mission of the kingdom to go forth. And you in that sense, because of God's choosing, not because of any deficiency in God, but because of choosing that is based upon his love are indispensable to him in the going forward of the kingdom. And even though he doesn't always call the powerful, the call is always powerful. Doesn't always call the powerful, but the call is powerful. Jesus says there, follow me. And the English translation doesn't do the Greek justice. In the Greek, it's stronger. In the Greek, there's like a three-word phrase, and it basically amounts to come here behind. That's what it amounts to. It's much more stronger than, hey, follow me, guys. Follow the leader. It's come here behind me. Kind of like you do with your kid in the store when they're wandering around, you know what I mean? Get behind me right now. <laughs> it's very strong. Come behind me. He wanted them with him and he wanted them following him. And what's clear is that he called them to more than a relationship based on learning. It was a relationship based on apprenticeship. They were to become apprentices of Christ. They were to imitate his life. The New Testament tells us the same. We're to be imitators of God. We're to be conformed to the image of Christ. And this apprenticeship has often been compared to Jewish rabbis of the time because Jewish rabbis had disciples. That wasn't an uncommon thing. But there's a difference between your average Jewish rabbi of the day and Jesus. You see, your average Jewish rabbi did not call or choose their followers but it was a student that would adopt the teacher. But here, Jesus is doing the adopting. Jesus is doing all of the choosing. 
In fact, he would say in John 15, you didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you. Look at the purpose for which he chose you. Okay, choosing means responsibility. I have chose you and I have appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, he said in John 15. His purpose for your life is that it would be fruitful for his glory, that he would take your life, what you do, your gifts, your talents, your proclivities, your gleanings, your likes and preferences, who he made you to be, that he would take you and cause your life to bear fruit for the kingdom of God, eternal fruit, a hundredfold fruit, more fruit than if you did it your way. He's chosen you for that, to bear fruit for his glory in this world. And one of the things that we see in this text when we begin to understand it is that the call of Christ is radical. I mean, it's radical. It requires a radical response immediately. They left everything and followed him. Their lives would never be the same. They would falter, they would fail, they would backslide. But it would never be the same. It's a radical call. And it requires a radical response. And the church needs to begin to ask itself, where are all the radicals? Where are all the men and women who would forsake all and go to the nations? Where are the women and men who would give themselves up to reach those who need Christ the most? Where are those who would put affluency and comfort upon the altar and choose to be radical for the purpose of Christ? Where are those who would be run through with a sword and hung upside down on a cross and persecuted and beaten and mocked and despised who would allow their lives to be poured out like a drink offering that men and women would be saved? Where are the radicals in the church? The call of Christ is radical. And although it is radical, I want you to notice that its occasion was very normal. Peter and Andrew were just casting a net because they were fishermen. That's what they did. That's what they did every day. They'd done it a million times. James and John were just there in their boat mending the nets because that's what you had to do as a fisherman. That's just part of your livelihood, part of your normal life. The call is radical, but the occasion is very normal. Everyday stuff. And Jesus steps into their world. Jesus shows up on their turf and beckons them to become about his business. Now, these are particular guys. Your call's not going to look the same, okay? They, they were called to leave the fishing business. Many of you are, are simply called to stay, but be faithful, okay? It doesn't always mean leaving everything. Sometimes it means being faithful in the little things. But Christ will call through normal circumstances. He just showed up where they were just doing their gig, and offered them the opportunity to live for something bigger, to go from fish to seeing men and women saved. When I first sensed the call of God, my wife and I, upon our lives, we were just doing a normal thing. We were at a surf contest, and 
part of what I did at the time was make surfboards and I coached kids in surf contests and surfed into myself. And we were just hanging out at a surf contest at Huntington Beach one day and Kate and I were just reading the Bible. We were between heats at the surf contest and had some downtime and we were reading the Bible. And to tell you the truth, it's one of the first times that really we had read the Bible out in public. You know, sometimes reading the Bible in public is a trip. Pull the Bible out on the airplane sometimes. Like open up your tray right there and have a big Bible. Please have a big Bible. Have a big Bible, like this big nasty NASB, this 10 pounder, and just pull it out and just wham on the tray and just start looking through it. People are like, like it's contraband. Like, how'd you get that through security? What are you, stewardess? So we were reading the Bible in public and this kid that I coached at the time in surfing and made his surfboards, he came up and he said, what are you guys reading? I said, the Bible. And he said, what's in the Bible? What do you mean what's in the Bible? I was naive enough to believe that every American knew what was in the Bible. He said, I've never seen one. Okay, Genesis 1. <laughs> Literally, my wife and I started at the beginning and we spent the whole day telling them about the plan and the heart and the character and the work of God. And as we were driving home, pulling into Carpinteria, my wife and I were ending in Revelation with a new heaven and the new earth. And that young man gave his life to Christ. And we just began to sense through that very normal circumstance, hanging out on the beach and someone asked a question that God had a call upon our lives and it would never be the same. We would backslide, we would falter, we would doubt it, we would kind of do this. I was a proverbial Jonah, but it would never be the same. Normal circumstances. God is already there working and he's calling. If only we had ears to hear. And obedience and faith to respond. I spoke to a man from our Ventura campus this week. And he had uh, just the week past been on a dirt biking trip. Went in the mountains with some of his buddies and went dirt biking and you know, the weather's getting cold and it was cold up in the mountains and they were supposed to have an RV that they are going to take to sleep in and be comfortable, but whoever was bringing the RV flaked out. You know, you get there, you're like, who brought the RV? Oh, I forgot it. <laughs> Somebody flaked out on the RV. <laughs> and so he and his buddies ended up just throwing their bags down on the ground and sleeping out in the weather all night and they were freezing. It was viciously cold and they're just freezing all night. And as he was there freezing... God spoke to him and said, people that I love sleep this way, but with less every night in your city. And God just started to burden his heart with that which burdens God's heart. And he, he couldn't shake it. We, he, he couldn't shake it. He sent me a text in the middle of the night saying, we need sleeping bags. We need hundreds of sleeping bags. I'm like, why did I tell the church I keep my phone by my bed? <laughs> and so now I told him, hey, dude, you got to do it. You got to go be the church. And so now he's organizing in Ventura a sleeping bag thing. And he, he's borrowed a van. He, he suckered some guy, couldn't get an RV, he's got a van. Suckered some guy into borrowing his van. And he's going to drive these sleeping bags around the city of Ventura. He knows where all the homeless people are hanging out. He's going to just start delivering sleeping bags. It's freezing cold outside. And he's, he's not normal anymore. He, he's got this passion. He's got this drive because he heard the call and it was normal circumstances. He was camping with his bros, dirt biking. He was cold. 
and he had ears to hear what the Spirit would say. Spirit wants to say so much to his church. Through normal circumstances, Christ wants to show up on your turf and invite you into his work to be about his business. When that happens, when Christ comes and calls, it creates a crisis. This was a crisis for these men. That was a crisis in the life of my wife and I. When we knew that God was calling us to proclaim his word to those people. It was a crisis in this guy's life when he was cold in that sleeping bag and couldn't shake the thought of men and women on the streets with nothing. It creates a crisis where a decision has to be made that we will either respond like the disciples responded and follow him or not. It's a crisis. The reason it's a crisis is because it is always costly. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you better count the cost. The kingdom work always costs something because the values of the kingdom are servanthood and sacrifice. Ministry and mission will always cost us. So it creates a crisis where we have to count the cost. These guys left everything that they had. They dropped the nets. They followed Jesus. They left the boat. James and John left Pops and all the workers in the boat and said, we're going to go follow Jesus. And we've got to to realize that that was no small thing. Okay, the nets and the boats, that that was their livelihood. That that was their everything. That's how their wives and their children ate. And their father... They were in business with their father. James and John loved their dad. Employees they were responsible for, they left everything. And we know that that hurt. See, a cost is always going to hurt. If it doesn't hurt, it didn't cost you. What did that cost you? 99 cents. (laughs) Nothing. But it hurts when it actually costs. We know it hurt Peter. Because Jesus would confront a rich man at a later time in Mark chapter 10 and and he wouldn't leave anything behind to follow Jesus. And Peter said, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. You could almost sense the frustration in Peter's voice. Lord, we've left everything and followed you. We know that that was difficult for Peter because later on after this call in Luke chapter five, he's back in the boat. In Luke chapter 5, he's fishing again. And Jesus steps into his world again. And Peter, God bless him, had been out all night and hadn't caught anything. And Jesus approaches him again and says, Peter, I need you. He wasn't talking about the mission quite yet. Just at the moment, there were all these people pressing around Jesus to hear him. And Jesus stepped into Peter's boat and said, Peter, I need you. Push out from the shore a little bit. I imagine that Peter needed to just hold the boat steady as Jesus taught from Peter's boat, from his livelihood, from his context. Jesus took the liberty to teach from it, to impart the word of life and living waters to people from Peter's boat, from Peter's world. And then Jesus would really mess Peter up 
Peter been out all night, didn't catch anything. And Jesus would be all, hey, Peter, after he taught everyone, why don't you let the nets down for a catch? That's so messed up. <laughs> Peter's out all night, doesn't catch anything. Jesus comes, teaches from the boat, and then says, hey, Pete, check down the net, see what you get. And mind you, everyone's watching. Okay, they all know that Peter got skunked last night. And now Jesus is like, throw down the nets. And you can imagine Peter's like, oi vey, Lord, listen. You're like a killer rabbi and teacher and prophet. And I think you might be the Messiah, but you don't know cheese about fishing. <laughs> Nevertheless, at your word, because of who I think you might be, I'll let down the nets. And you know the rest of the story. It was the biggest single moment of income in Peter's life. It was the biggest catch. And that's beginning to break. He had to call his partners. What Jesus was doing there was demonstrating his mastery over that which concerned Peter most. Peter went back to fishing. And Jesus steps in and says, a big catch? I can do in an instant what you couldn't do all night. I could provide in an instant the catch of a lifetime. And in that, he, he, was, he was able to remove the hook of that thing in Peter's flesh. Because Christ had at his fingertips everything that Peter was after, and it didn't matter to Christ. He, 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 in, an, in a conversation, he leaves the fish behind, and he says, now, Peter, this is nothing for me. But once again now, if you will follow me, I will make you a catcher of men. I'm inviting you into something far more valuable than your return on investment. I'll make you count for eternity in the work that you do. And in an instant, Peter sees a futility and the inadequacy of his own values and priorities. And he follows Christ into something bigger, the ministry of people. Jesus is always pushing us to see the value of people in his eyes. When the religious leaders would be upset about and complain about the fact that Jesus hung out with seedy people, with sinners, Jesus would talk to them about things that they all considered valuable. He would say, you know, there was a shepherd that lost one of his sheep. And like any good shepherd, he went after that one sheep. And when he got it, he rejoiced. They would be like, yeah, yeah, of course. Sheep, that's a valuable thing. And you know, there's a woman and she lost a coin and she looked all over for the coin. And when she found the coin, she said to everybody, found my coin. Yeah, of course, it's valuable. And only after getting them to think of the value of things would Christ then say to them, and there was a father who lost a son. And when the son came home, the father rejoiced. He would always move from common points of reference and value to the value of people. When religious leaders were mad at him for healing on the Sabbath in Luke 14, he would say to them, well, which one of you, if you had a donkey or an ox and it fell in a ditch on the Sabbath day, which one of you want to immediately pull it out? Of course, they would all agree. And he would say, so how much more a person? Christ is always trying to reorient 
our perception and our values toward people. Someone put this on the Missio Christi website this week. You know, it's been cold this week. I uh, got up Tuesday morning real early to be at the Ventura campus at 6 a.m. for the prayer meeting, and uh, my windshield was solid ice when I got up. I had to come by the church and pick up some of the staff to go down there, and it was 35 degrees here at the church on the beach. It was cold that morning. He posted this on the Missio Christi website this week. He said, on Monday, it was cold and wet, and our friends in the streets felt it. One of them died from it. His name was Freedom. Freedom was a paraplegic and a Vietnam vet. I met Freedom on Veterans Day, and when I met him, he was crying for all the boys who had died and continue to die in the wars of our nation. Then he told me about his life, how his wife and his children had died, and how much he missed them. And then he praised God for his goodness and his love. I was at a complete loss as to what to do with this man, with his life, the tragedy, and the pain of it, and yet his joy and perspective on it. And on Monday, he died because it was cold and wet and he had no shelter. You know, I have to confess that I used to think that because we live in sunny Southern California, that homeless people wouldn't die from the elements. I was wrong. And freedom was the 28th person to die on the streets of Santa Barbara this year. Gospel of Matthew says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. There's lots of work to do but the laborers are few. Christ's call is the call to people, to see them saved for Christ's glory, to bring some measure of mercy into their misery. To be fishers of men, and the call is radical. Jesus asked these guys for total commitment. And again, they left their nets, they left everything and followed him. The King James gets a little closer to the Greek. It says they forsook their nets. It's a stronger word than they left them. They forsook them. It, it means to send away from oneself, to, to yield, to just abandon. They just abandoned whatever was hindering Christ's mission of saving people. And the construction of the grammar implies that there was a separation. There was a newness that had to come. There was a complete and permanent break with those things. And there was a brand new beginning. I asked you earlier, what does Christ call upon you? And sometimes we can't answer that question until we've answered this one. What is Christ calling you to forsake? It might not be the nets or the boats. But often when he's calling us to something, he's simultaneously and necessarily calling us from something. What is Christ calling you to forsake? 
What is hindering his mission going forward through your life in our community? It's a mistake to think that everyone else's call is going to look like Peter's. Peter, that was unique. It's not going to look like Andrew and James and John. Everyone's call is different. It's going to look different. And again, he's not calling many of you to necessarily leave. He's calling you to stay and be faithful. But faithfulness often requires forsaking. Whether it's a sin, a relationship, a comfort, the call of Christ is radical. And the call of Christ is relational. He's calling you to himself. Remember that the church is sent into the world with him. In Mark chapter 3, it says that Jesus appointed those whom he wanted to be with him. He called the disciples to be with him, and then he would send them out to preach and have authority to cast over demons. But they weren't to do the ministry until they had experienced intimacy. They needed to go through phase one first, knowing Jesus, believing Jesus, loving Jesus. And then they would transition them into phase two, going with Jesus. But you see, ministry flows from intimacy. Mission comes from relationship. And maybe whatever Christ is calling you to forsake is not so much missional as it is relational in its implications. Standing between you and him. I spoke with two different people this week, unrelated conversations, about the very tangible call that Christ had upon their lives. And both of them had this overwhelming sense of unworthiness. These were people that I know and I know intimately and I've observed their lives and I see and I testify that they have a relationship with Jesus that I'm jealous of. They know Christ in a way that I want to know Christ. And, and I was expressing to them the call upon their life. And each one of them had this, this overwhelming sense of, but I'm not worthy. When Jesus had Peter's biggest return on investment right at the end of his fingertips, what did Peter do? He said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a wicked man. When Isaiah saw the glory of God in its fullness, what did he do? He said, woe is me, I'm in trouble. Man of unclean lips. I think that those who see Christ most clearly and nearly see people most correctly, including themselves. And humility is a prerequisite for fruitfulness in the kingdom chooses the foolish things of the world. He gives grace to the humble and he's opposed to the proud. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Lord, we ask for grace. Thank you, Father, that you're not mad at us because you see us through the lens of Christ. We thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for the work of the cross that we are accepted, adopted, chosen, 
appointed and anointed by the Holy Ghost for your mission. We just ask that by grace, we'd have a greater revelation and experience of that in our lives. And tune our ears to hear, Holy Spirit, what you have to say to the church. Talk to us about forsaking things and following faithfully. Say to us, here, behind me now. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Give us faith to respond. Steady our ankles to walk the course that you've set before us. Jesus, we believe that when we go to work tomorrow, you're already there at work. You're already on mission. Open our eyes to it. Help us to follow you to work tomorrow. Help us to follow you into our marriages. Help us to follow you to the broken in our community. Open our eyes, Lord. Guys, I invite you to pray with one another. Pray for an explosion of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Pray that we would be open to the call of God. Pray for an outpouring of his gifts upon us, for holy boldness to proclaim him, grace and humility to demonstrate him. Pray for each other. Prayer team is up here to the right and to the left. Ventura campus on your right and on your left. They'll lay hands on you and pray for you. Maybe you, you've got an inkling that I think I'm called to. Tell them and ask them to pray for anointing upon you. And maybe you're in the place where you're like Peter today and you just want to fall on your face before Jesus in an utter sense of unworthiness. Know that you're accepted and you're chosen and you're beloved. But do humble yourself before a mighty God.